This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. Earlier this week, Eastern Ma traditional owners gathered in southern Victoria to celebrate a huge win, a native title determination. None of the people who brought the initial case are alive to celebrate the outcome, so this morning we look at what it means for the future generations. We've been on a really long journey, I feel emotional already, and today is really important for uh, long fought from the generations before us and it's important for the generations to come. Before we get there, though, let's have a wrap of this week's biggest rural news. Serena Locke is here to help with that. Good morning, Serena. Hi, Clint. The he said, she said over who is to blame for the Department of Agriculture's financial woes continued this week. Yes, and the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt was assuring producers that no money has been taken from biosecurity in the process of fixing the financial issues plaguing the department. So earlier this month, the Federal Department of Agriculture and Fisheries and Forestry, known as DAF, announced it would be cutting costs by banning travel and training and sacking contractors to save money after it was revealed the department was on the cusp of requiring a bailout. Now, in response to concerns about the capacity of the department to effectively manage Australia's biosecurity needs, Minister Watt took aim at the previous government. Unfortunately, we're now in this situation due to years of poor financial management by the former government in this department. Unfortunately, uh, what we saw was uh, biosecurity and other costs continue to rise uh, over a very long period of time without costs being passed on to industry. We've also seen contractors and consultants in the department blow out by hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and that, of course, has an impact on the department's finances. So now's the time that we need to get the house in order. And I assume the opposition didn't take that one lying down? No, they didn't. Uh, so in a statement to the ABC, former Agriculture Minister David Littleproud said that reports the department is on the cusp of a financial bailout are mind-blowing. And I quote Littleproud, it's obvious that when the departments of agriculture and environment were split under the Albanese government, government, agriculture bore the cost of environment. Now, he said the financial report for 21-22, when the coalition was in power, showed the Ag Department had a surplus of $88.4 million. So, more to come. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns spent his first full day in his new role in the town of Menindi in the state's far west to get a first-hand briefing on the fish kills near that town. Yeah, a massive clean-up got underway last week to remove millions of dead fish from the Darling Barker River. The Premier, Chris Minns, says the trip was about listening and learning and also to ensure the government action and policy changes are put in place to stop it becoming a regular occurrence. Yeah, if people want a more in-depth discussion of the political nature of the Lower Darling and why it always seems to be in some state of crisis, the chat I had last week with Professor Sue Jackson has you covered. But what did the state pollies who travelled to Menindee earlier this week have to say during that trip? Well, the state's new environment, Minister Penny Sharp says the trip was about getting a formal briefing from the agencies involved on the ground and listening to the locals with the aim of preventing it happening again. This is an ecological disaster, but it is also a really serious matter for every single person in this community. Whether you're running a business, whether you're trying to just drink the water and know that it's safe, people are really concerned about all of this. 
Now, commercial carp fishermen are being contracted to clean up the river of the rotting fish. The Premier, Chris Minns, agreed that the incoming government needed to look at water management throughout regional New South Wales, and he said he wanted to get future policies right rather than holding people to account for previous decisions. And as for the change of government, the long-time Darling Barker River campaigner Rob McBride of Tolano Station was welcoming a different science-based environmental approach from a new government in New South Wales. Serena, let's stay in the basin. The federal government's plan to buy water off farmers to make up a shortfall in the basin plan's water recovery targets is now in full swing. Yeah, so at the end of last week, the federal government officially opened the tender process for water buybacks to meet the 49 gigalitres of environmental water needed to reach the bridging the gap targeted in the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Under the plan, the government will seek to buy 27 gigalitres from New South Wales catchments. So that includes nine and a half gigalitres from the Namoy and five gigalitres from the border rivers. Now, this water will be purchased from willing sellers only. But National Irrigators Council CEO Isaac Jeffrey says not all environmental outcomes need to be achieved with higher water volumes of buybacks. Some environmental outcomes are volumes-based. You know, natural fish need certain volume flows. You need certain volume flows to get water to uh, certain areas. But not all of the environmental outcomes that are needed actually need uh, those high volumes. You can get the same results and often better results through things like complementary measures and investment in infrastructure so you can actually move the water to where it needs to go. We know it's been very tough for farmers hit by natural disasters in the past several years. Now there's a study confirming many farmers are actually suffering quite badly. Yeah, so you think about the drought then the black summer fires in 2019-2020, followed by the pandemic isolation or isolation in general on farms, and then the floods during three very wet years. And the National Farmer Wellbeing Report has found 30% of farmers have attempted self-harm or suicide. The snapshot of the mental health of Australia's farmers also revealed that 45% of respondents have also felt depressed, with almost two-thirds expressing anxiety in recent years. Farmer and Crisis Councillor Ross Blanche says farmers are dealing with a range of difficult issues. Anxiety and commodity price rises, um, now the cattle prices are dropping and financial stress, it, it just goes on and on and every farm's different but a lot of the anxiety is the same and sadly it's not dealt with. National Farmers Federation Vice President David Johinke, a grain and livestock farmer in Victoria, says farmers don't feel appreciated for what they do. He says there needs to be a coordinated state and federal funding for mental health services dedicated to farmers. In rural areas, we're seeing twice as many suicides by people who work in rural areas. So what we don't want to happen is people to become numb and immune to these numbers. That's a, that's a family, that's somebody who's important to every community that we lose in those numbers. And what we need to do is make sure that there's adequate services that are accessible, readily accessible, and also to keep continue to break down the stigma of what mental health is and how we as a community and as a collective have interventions when needed. And if you or anyone you know needs help, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14.
John Kerrin died this week. He was Labor's Agriculture Minister under the Hawke government. He was a huge reformer named by the present Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, as Australia's best reformist Agriculture Minister. Yeah, but naturally reform is hard to drive through and his policies of removing tariffs, uh, removing centralised price-setting mechanisms on things like wool, wheat and dairy produced many enemies in the rural scene. But it did open up Australian farmers to the world stage of trading and as the least subsidised farmers in the world, he was considered an agricultural economist policy elder statesman. So he took those difficult decisions to remove the floor price on wool mm. in 1991, which I remember very well. Mm. Buyers were no longer willing to pay the high price for wool, which was set by the wool board. So it was producing a massive stockpile and Karen was unfairly blamed for the price collapse. Um, subsequently, Hawke commissioned economist Ross Garno to oversee the drip feeding of this wool stockpile into the market until it was all sold. So that wool price stayed low for years. So Karen was, you know, at the beginning of all that there. Now, Karen also drove the establishment of agricultural research and development corporations. Now, these are the co-funded R&D um, bodies by industry and government, and it's a system widely considered to be unique in the world. And I knew John and his work in international agricultural aid, and that kept him busy right to the end of his 85 years. And the Prime Minister paid tribute to John Kerrin, quoting John as saying, politics is like farming. No one is forced to do it, but somebody has to. Vale, John Kerrin. Let's turn to the concerning news now that a popular farm vehicle is catching a light and sparking bushfires. Yeah, side by sides. They've become commonly used on properties after multiple major quad bike manufacturers pulled out of the country because of the strict safety regulations like requiring rollover bars to be installed. Now, on the New South Wales Southern Tablelands, the Rural Fire Service has attended at least five fires over recent weeks, which were started by the side-by-sides. Sam Kelly, who's also on the region's New South Wales Farmers Bushfire Committee, believes there are design issues with many of the models. Some of them, I think, are catching with the mufflers. I'm hearing that one particular model potentially is the braking system is causing issues. My view is when you look at side-by-sides, the motors behind the seat. The mufflers are in, tucked in underneath the trays on most of them, so they don't get any airflow. And in particular for livestock farmers where we predominantly are driving slower around paddock, checking stock or mustering stock, the heat build up in those areas would be fairly significant. Serena, it was a big week for environment and climate news. On Monday, we found out the government's hard cap on carbon emissions was set to be legislated after it worked out a deal with the Greens on that safeguard mechanism. And on the environment policy side of things, some potential reforms to improve biosecurity outcomes. Yeah, so farmers and Indigenous rangers are a step closer to being paid to protect nature, with the federal government introducing legislation that would establish a biodiversity trading scheme. Now, the Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, says the new scheme will help Australia improve its environment by rewarding landholders that complete projects such as fencing off dams or planting native trees. Now, the Greens have criticised this legislation, saying Australia's biodiversity needs protection, not, quote, green 
between Wall Street and the opposition accused the government of just copying its own policy word for word. <laughs> but Ms Plibersek says their policy is open to all landholders and not just farmers is not a case of policy plagiarism. Protecting remnant bushland, uh, restoring damaged areas, repairing you know, the surrounds of the dam in this case. Uh, so that can be farmers, it can be private landholders, uh, it can be First Nations people on Indigenous protected areas, for example. We've got a much broader range of landholders that can participate. And we've also substantially increased the integrity measures. We need to make sure that if people are investing in repairing nature, that we actually get those long-term benefits. You can see more on that on Landline on Sunday. Serena, fast fashion's ugly impact on the planet is a huge issue across the globe, but an Australian project with a punchy name is trying to address that. This is phase two of the Cotton Circularity Project. Clint, it's more affectionately known as the Soil Your Undies Project, so they lay out cotton underwear into fields and see how it breaks down. Mm. It's a good vision of that, <laughs> uh, of that on our online stories. Researchers are identifying a scalable long-term solution to the issue of textile waste. Now, the project's first phase was held just outside of Gundawindi, where it will continue into phase two, joined by a Gunadar cotton farmer. Now, Associate Professor of Soil Systems Biology with the University of New England, Dr Oliver Knox, has found that the cotton waste has no adverse impact to soil health or cotton yields. We got to the end of phase one and the crops looked great. Uh, there was no real difference between our treatments. And I guess we felt quite happy. You know, we've, we've taken a waste, we've diverted it from landfill, we've applied it to an agricultural setting and the crops weren't affected negatively by this. So everything was pretty sweet. We're all pretty happy. What a lovely note to end on. Serena, thank you very much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Thanks, Clint. This week, we're visiting a Tasmanian farm that's one of only a handful in Australia growing pine trees to harvest one of the world's most expensive nut crops. We'll meet the makers bringing an ancient alcoholic drink into the modern age, and we'll hear about the work of a community group with an ambitious goal of planting half a million trees to create a wildlife corridor for koalas in their region. They're already well on the way with 250,000 trees in the ground and they're seeing the rewards of their hard work. When you're up at the top of the hill and you're looking at different stages of all these plantings and you can see the connection and you can see the corridor beginning to come about and you just think it's worth all the blood, sweat and tears. First today, we're riding the school bus with kids from remote properties in far western Queensland. Three years ago, the primary school in the tiny town of Stonehenge had just three students and parents were worried about whether it could stay open. The community decided to start a school bus service to get kids who were studying online at properties out of town to come into the classroom. And it's worked. Dan Prosser has the story. Good morning, girls. How are we today, Mila, Ruby and Mum? It's seven o'clock and school bus driver Deb Porter is picking up kids on an hour-long road trip to one of the most remote primary schools in Australia, in the town of Stonehenge, population of 44. We're right to go. OK, kids, all belts on, sitting back. The daily bus run only started three years ago and local dad Mick Campbell admits it was a bit of an experiment. 2019... Uh, the Stonehenge School had three kids enrolled there, so it was initiated by the principal at the time to run a pilot 
bus program. There was no guarantees it was going to work. But it has. Children living on remote stations have switched from online learning to the classroom, and the school now has 17 students. So valuable. It's, it's, it frees up my time, you know, and, and the kids... The kids love it. Grazier Suzanne Laidler drives her children 30 kilometres down a dirt driveway to meet the bus. I ask them all the time if they want to come back and, and me teach them. Hey, Mum, no. <laughs> they love the interaction. They love it. I mean, we wouldn't be there if the bus run didn't run. I mean, there's no way I would travel 100k either way, you know. So the bus run is vital. And I mean, you know, the bus run's vital to keep the school going too, I think, because there's a lot of, there's only two children not on the bus run. Yeah, and it's a great, it's a great community. Like it's a great because of the bus run. It's all country kids. They're a great bunch of kids, and yeah, it's um, very vital. And our and our bus driver, <laughs> we love our bus driver. I hope she stays on for a few more years yet. <laughs> but no, she's fabulous. The kids love her. Um, she's great. She's very caring. Very. She gets them to and from school very safely. Um, we couldn't ask for a better, better bus driver. Reliable. There. She's here every morning, every afternoon. She's great. Finding a reliable driver in such a remote area was one of the biggest challenges. Until 66-year-old grandmother Deb Porter decided to give it a crack. My precious cargo. I've called them that ever since I started driving the bus. And it's a job she loves. As you're getting older, like a middle, mature age as they call us, it's nice to have that feeling that you, you need it, I guess you need it and that you're doing something that's helping somebody and it's, it does wonders for yourself and your mental and your well-being that's it and I, I love those kids and the people and the families it's just been it's been the best thing for me parent mick campbell says the school bus service has now qualified for a queensland government subsidy I think the bus run and the extra students in there keeping that school alive has kept the town alive as well and it's and created jobs. Education expert Dr Tanya Leach from the University of Southern Queensland says it shows the power of community. So this is significant. It keeps the school uh, functioning and it, it keeps it viable. But in some communities, uh, a bus run won't save the school. We had examples in... Uh, at some of our mining towns before there were no youth in the community. And I guess that highlights is every solution is contextual, but the core of it is when you have communities and schools working together, we really do have uh, equitable access to education and the uh, choices for kids to access quality education face-to-face. -face. In the hustle and bustle of the classroom, packed with eager learners, Stonehenge State School Principal Bridget Ryan sees firsthand the value of the bus run. The bus run to us is very important um, in the sense that it's bringing five of our families to school every day. So 11 kids are on the bus. Um, so it is a full bus and Deb, she's incredible in bringing them to school, um, picking them up, taking them home. So yeah, we absolutely love having our bus run. I think the benefit of being in a small school is that our students are exposed to curriculum right through because we do a multi-age teaching. I think the benefits to being in our school is that they are socialising with other kids. At the moment we're quite fortunate because we have a number of kids around the same age so they are getting on quite well with each other, playing in the playground and just listening to them laughing at lunch is just beautiful. Back on the bus, 
It's an approach that these students are happy to celebrate. It has been a busy few years for a community group working on a project to restore koala habitat in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. Bangalore Koalas has a goal to plant 500,000 trees by 2025 to create a wildlife corridor connecting habitat across the region. The group recently reached a milestone of 250,000 trees in the ground. President Linda Sparrow says since 2019, they've completed 91 plantings on 69 properties across six local shires. When you're up at the top of the hill and you're looking at different stages of all these plantings and you can see the connection and you can see the corridor beginning to come about and you just think it's worth all the blood, sweat and tears. Hello, I'm Kim Honan. If Linda and her crew weren't busy enough, floods in the region last year made for even more work as they replanted trees that were wiped out by flood water. I thought last year was bad, this year is just as busy, but last year we planted just under 83,000 trees and then on top of that we planted another 25,500 infills for about 10 properties that got wiped out by the floods through grant money that I actually applied for. And the first trees that you planted in 2019, how are they looking now? Oh, they've, they've got koalas using them. So, so myself and the other Linda that works for us a couple of days a week, we went out last week into a property in two properties in Bangalore and those trees were planted some in three years ago, some two years ago, and they've already got scats and scratches of koalas. So the koalas are already using those trees. How many landholders have you been working with? Well, we've actually worked with 69 landholders and there's quite a lot of them are actually farmers now. So it's more farmers offering up large areas of their land. There's a variety of farmers all over the place, out west Kyogle, um, down in the Richmond Valley, uh, here in Lismore, in Byron and Ballina. And they're all coming to us. And what do they see as the main benefits of having these koala trees on their properties? Well, well a lot of them, it's bare paddock. It's empty paddock that we're one property at Backmead that we went to and we're going to be planting soon. And the 360 uh, view at the top of his hill was just empty. So he sees a benefit of like planting trees out. It, it benefits the cattle for shade and stuff like that and it and the quality of the soil and all those sorts of things that it's actually it's a win-win for everyone. Tree number 250,000 was planted on Mindy Greenwood's 10 hectare property at Gormangar northwest of Lismore. So this is pretty much a um, life goal for me. This is something I've wanted to do since I was a young adult just buy a chunk of land and plant it out for um, biodiversity. We bought this place about five years ago and have been trying to kind of slowly chip away at it, but it's such a big thing to try and do when you've got a family and you're both working full-time, so we didn't make much progress. So you've got trees going in at the front of your property, but also down the back of the property, yeah? Yep, all the way back down to the creek, so it'll be a nice long strip, and hopefully the goal has always been, and I tell my kids we've got that big gum tree down near the mailbox, 
Um, the goal is to make it so the koalas can get from the creek to the mailbox without having to come down to the ground. Bangalore Koalas is working with three nurseries, three bush regeneration companies and three Indigenous ranger groups to get 90,000 trees planted this year. Forgettable rangers Naeem Williams and Jerome Green from Mooley Mooley, it's good to be working on traditional country. They are strong, like I said, gizable um, men and just love, you know what I mean, regenerating, you know what I mean, the, our native land, you know, so, you know, given sort of um, the respect back to our people that managed our land for over, you know what I mean, 200,000 years, so, yeah, that's how much I'm proud, proud I am, yeah. yeah. It's also, also just to work with, you know, your cousins and stuff too as well, it helps us connect the country, so, yeah, that's pretty much it, man. Wild, I can join it too as well. And what sort of other work do you do as a ranger? But, you know, fencing, bush region, yeah, yeah so. Yeah, like bush region and land management, horticulture, and yeah, like even we do surveys for native um, animals, so that's good, like working, like I said, with all the brothers, reconnecting, we go off track a bit, but then we've got this here as a tool to, you know, like help us in our own um, life journey too, eh, brother? Yeah. And have you been super busy since the floods a year ago with the, the regen work and planting trees? Been super busy, so a lot of, lot of things have come up too as well after the floods, you know, so yeah, we're pretty flat out every day, so. Gittable yeah. Rangers, Nayam Williams and Jerome Green from Muli Muli. They've been involved in a project to restore koala habitat in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, where they spoke to reporter Kim Honan. Before that, Dan Prosser joined kids catching the bus to their primary school, one of the most remote in the country, in outback Queensland. You'll find more on both of those stories on the RN homepage. Head to the website at abc.net.au slash rn and look for Country Breakfast. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Still to come, we'll meet a very patient farmer. He's growing pine nuts and waiting years for his first harvest. And the future of mead, the honey-based alcoholic drink consumed by Vikings and ancient Egyptians, is getting a modern makeover at one of Australia's most awarded meaderies. Jennifer Nichols caught up with Nicola Cleaver from Amrita Park Meadery in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland. We've been launching the sparkling range, the session mead, so the pink grapefruit and lots of traditionals coming along with our own honey that we've been harvesting because the bees have been going absolutely um, gangbusters in the garden. Lots of gardening, just planting in a heap more uh, native trees for the bees so we can really up our honey production. And yeah, lots of mead making, big festivals um, all throughout the winter seasons. The Abbey Medieval Festival would have to be your biggest event on the calendar? Yes, that's our biggest weekend so you've got 35,000 Vikings lining up to buy mead so it's a bit hectic yeah and maidens and mead maidens yeah they make very long queues for us it's not just a thick sticky dessert drink it can be bone dry it can be sparkling it can be semi-dry semi-sweet melamels which is the addition of fruits or just traditionals which is just showcasing all the honey styles so just really getting the mead out there in general and for people who don't know about the history of mead 
Can you explain a little bit about it? Yes, it predates any beer, any wine. It's been found in Chinese tombs over 10,000 years ago. It's been in everybody's history and culture and religion. It's actually a naturally occurring alcohol. So if you come across a wild hive in a forest and because honey has its own bacteria and yeast, some rainwater that had gotten in that hive would have created a traditional mead, which is honey, water and yeast. So Mother Nature basically invented mead. Where are you sourcing most of your ingredients now? Most of our ingredients come from Amrita Park. So we have about six varieties of orange and lemon that we put in our citrus and chai spice. We still use Tahitian limes from a lady called Laura up near Kinkin and she does all the fruit grafting for the citrus farms and the byproduct is the limes, which we're lucky enough to have. All the pink grapefruit come actually from next door. They have a lot of trees, but they don't like eating the fruit. So we get to use that. And also the passion fruits still come from Beanham Valley Passions. And yeah, we have our own Japoticabas and we still have our own Gramacharma cherries, Acerola cherries. And I've also just made a mulberry mead, which is really looking forward to getting into the bottle for winter this year. What is the modern interest in this ancient alcohol? Ooh, it would have to be the sparkling session meads at the moment. They're really taking off, especially in summertime. It's a very easy drinking, lighter style mead and you can get it in a can. You've done a lot of work to streamline your production area. Yeah, uh, we're looking at building another shed and um, yes, and another sort of packing area and refrigeration facilities. Storage is our number one at the moment. That's Nicola Cleaver and Andy Coates is the other half of this partnership (laughs) at Amrita Park Meadery. Andy, you've actually got this new sparkling pink grapefruit mead. It's a bit of a new product for us. Mead, sort of a lot of people shy away from it in summertime they think it's a bit of a winter drink which isn't really true but yeah fresh fruity flavors mixed with the honey lower alcohol comes in a can we do all the canning on site and all our labeling is still done by us it's um taking off around the place loose hinterland brewing company and a couple little places like that really local places that we're really sharing the love and the punters are really liking it what goes into making a sparkling grapefruit mead because the alcohol content is much lower so it's around about the five five and a half percent the process is similar but the starting gravity is a little bit less so that we don't have as high uh, alcohol and it's a much drier product so it's not quite as sweet starting, starting gravity, gravity. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you measure how much sugars is in your um, mixture or your wort to start with it's actually called a must in mead making so similar to beer or wine there's a start gravity there's a lot of sugar to start with and then the yeast consume the sugar and convert that to alcohol and carbon dioxide so if you start with less then there's less alcohol in the end and it's a drier product and less sugars left okay, well should we give it a go why not we'll um crack a can it's a, a big mouth can so you get to have sort of have a bit of a smell and stuff as well sort of a little bit of a cross between champagne and cider i guess yeah but it's got nice um honey notes and a little bit of a bitterness right at the end from the grapefruit oh, so that's really refreshing. interesting yeah yeah so it's a classic summer flavors Grapefruit can tend to be a bit sour, but this isn't. No, so we choose a couple of different varieties of grapefruits, so mainly Ruby and Rio, and we use those varieties because they're quite a sweet. There's a touch of bitterness, which you want, just enough to balance out the little bit of residual sweetness in the sparkling mead. Yeah, it's very refreshing and, as you are saying, light. Yes, yeah. Nicola Cleaver was saying that you've increased the number of hives on your property too. You're actually beekeeping yourself, <laughs> or you're still getting an apiarist in? Uh, so it's a bit of a mix. We have increased beekeeping's pretty addictive and I've sort of been 
been pretty hot on catching a few swarms and yeah beekeeping so the more you know the more you realize you don't know and it's I'm always liking to learn things so that's always fun but the honey that we get on site is going towards some uh, really interesting varieties we got a very strange honey that goes a lot of wattle and things like that in the flavors and very very yellow so we've just put down a batch of that so it's sort of smaller batch with our honeys but yeah definitely still buying in tons at a time so we bought in three tons just recently we got ironbark we got avocado macadamia bimble box which is just uh, yeah something i had never had before and uh, yeah i'm really excited to start playing with that one you still enjoying it yeah yeah still enjoying it the paperwork side of things not so much but yeah the festivals the meeting people the slow foods the big family of people that we meet at events and things yeah it's great love it wouldn't be doing anything else in the back of my mind, I just thought there must be something else that's possible to do with the land that, that if you're a small producer and not really in the, the, the game of cattle and sheep in vast numbers, there's something else you can do with your land and that you didn't need to get into grapes or, or massive stuff. That, and also that it suited the climate and that, um, the rainfall better than what we were currently using. And I'd heard about pine nuts years and years ago and I thought mm, maybe that, that might be a viable thing. That thought prompted farmer and agricultural scientist Andrew Bailey to plant pine trees with the hope of one day harvesting pine nuts on his property here in northern Tasmania. I've had the place 25 years and the, sh the pine trees have been in for um, about 12 years and and uh, from an environmental point of view or production point of view it fits perfectly with um, where they would grow in Europe in this, at the same latitude. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith and I'm visiting Andrew here at Winkley just out of Launceston in the West Tamar region. The trees he's growing here are native to Mediterranean Europe and a different species to pine trees grown for their timber. Totally different, yeah. Um, they do have a timber aspect to them, but it's it's not considered uh, brilliant sort of wood. You know, Pinus radiata definitely has that market stitched up. But in Europe, they are a native species that grow out in the, the country. Uh, and particularly, for example, during the war, when food was short, people would go out in the forest and collect pine cones and get the nuts out of those as a, a way of supplementing um, their diet because food was so scarce. And, and it's probably a bit like um, in Australia, we might wander out and collect mushrooms or or bush tucker and that sort of stuff. Um, in Europe, it, it fills a similar sort of role. While pine trees are proving a good fit for this property, growing nuts for harvest is a pursuit that requires a good deal of patience. I've had um, the first lot in since 2015 and they have their uh, three years worth of cones on them because as I said, the, the cones take three years to mature and um, so it's not a crop like, an, a, like a typical crop where you have an annual um, takeoff. Uh, you've got to be very patient. And um, but it's obvious which which cones belong to which year because they start from being a jelly jelly bean sort of size, and then they'll go through to being something the size of a large grapefruit. So weigh possibly just under a kilo. So realistically, how many years will it take for you to harvest? your first pine nuts? <laughs> that's, that's the challenging question because there's, there's only four of us in Australia that I know of that are doing this and, and I'm, the, one of the producers in Victoria has, has probably uh, been going 
five or six years longer than me, and he's he's definitely um, uh, harvesting reasonable quantities. I'm looking to possibly harvest the first set of pines in maybe next year, maybe the year after. We still might be five or six years down the track before we've got enough where you've got uh, a saleable quantity. Can you find me a small cone on this tree or do we have to go hunting so I can see what it looks like? If we look further into the tree, by chance I've actually seen there's a couple there. The previous year. Now you can see that's buried about um, two foot into the tree. And looking at that one, it's it's um it's pliable. It hasn't gone black because I've been talking to researchers in Chile and um, they've given me some some ideas on things to look for just so you understand uh, how the whole thing's progressing and whether whether that cone has died along the way or whether it's still viable and um, and and hopefully growing to its three-year end. There's another one just here as well. And that, that cone's about the size of a macadamia nut, so yes. not not the full full quid that, no, that you could uh, associate with a pine tree. Well, yes, and but you can appreciate that it's got a lot of growing to do in the next... Um, presumably this is from last year, so it's got a lot of do, growing to do in the next two years to get to that sort of eight or 900 gram size. And how tall can the trees get? I believe they get to about 60 metres, but that's that's going to be well past my my lifetime. Um, they also grow to about 150 years. So in, if they become as productive as they are in Europe, then the cost of planting and everything else is, is well and truly paid for in the lifetime of the tree. <laughs> the, the big challenge will be once we've got pine cones that are ready to, to harvest, getting the, the infrastructure to make that work efficiently. The, the cones normally with warm weather will open and sort of dehiss like other sort of plants do and pop that that seed out. Now the, the challenge with these pine trees is that the seed comes out much like a pistachio seed. So it's already encased in a shell and then we've got to further process that to get uh, that seed out and then you've got to polish it and it's fit for consumption. How much are you hoping to make from these? in terms Nuts. of product, yeah. in terms of kilograms. Yeah. That again's an unknown because in the European context, they, they grow them differently. Uh, the first one is they tend to have them almost scattered, although they're moving to a more a plantation approach. The best examples we can look at are probably the Chilean experience and maybe the, the New Zealand one, but the Chileans are 50 years ahead of us. And so they've, they've approached it very much from a production point of view. And they, they talk between 600, I think it is, and 1,500 kilograms of nuts per hectare. And then you go, there's only 4% nuts out of all that mass. So you're only talking hundreds or at best 100 kilos, maybe, or 200 kilos per hectare. But they are the most expensive nut in the world for food nuts. So hopefully the economics is there and we'll overcome all the challenges along the way. Pine nut grower Andrew Bailey speaking to Larissa Smith from his property in northern Tasmania. For more on that story and all of the stories on today's program, head online to the RN homepage. If you click on the program tab and look for Country Breakfast, you'll find links to all of the stories you've heard today.
Pig farmers say that they were upset and disturbed with the footage of pigs in an abattoir which aired on the ABC's 7.30 program this week. Sarah Groom and her husband Aaron run Homemade Healthy Happy Farm at Waitui on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, which provides an alternative to large-scale producers. It's a small farm which turns off only 30 pigs per year. Their pigs roam outside with little containment, no tail docking, no forced weaning of piglets and no castration. But Sarah says there needs to be a nuanced discussion when it comes to pig production. She's speaking here with Tina Quinn. Pigs are the most intelligent and the most emotionally aware animal that we raise for meat. And they also tend to be raised in the worst conditions of all the animals that we raise for meat, um, which I struggle to understand how we accept that as a society, that we take this animal that is as emotionally aware and as intelligent as a dog and cram them into you know, concrete pens indoors and they never see the light of day. Tell me how you felt when you had a look at some of the videos uh, that aired on, on 7.30, videos of how pigs are often slaughtered, how they're often killed in abattoirs here in Australia by carbon dioxide. Mm. It's obviously really confronting. I don't think anyone can look at that fo- footage and not be upset and disturbed by it. It's quite confronting and upsetting. You know, that was my reaction as well. It's not nice to see an animal go through that kind of stress at all, whatever the reason. I think that footage like that is important for keeping industries accountable, but I think that we also need to recognise that that's not necessarily how it always happens, and that is the more extreme end of how pigs can respond to carbon dioxide. There's certainly plenty of pigs that don't react at all that just quietly Mm -hmm. go and that's part of why the carbon dioxide method is seen to be one of the more ethical options out there for slaughtering a pig but obviously that level of distress for that many pigs that we saw in that footage is an indication that we should maybe reconsider how things are being done what kind of concerns do you have when, when you're sending them off to uh, to be slaughtered at an abattoir? Are you happy with the practices that, that they're implementing or that they're using, utilising? Am I happy with the practices? I don't know because it's really hard to get on the floor of abattoirs in Australia, which is an unfortunate thing. But is there another option currently? No. Um, Essentially, every abattoir in Australia is using the carbon dioxide method. There may be some small ones that are not, but for the most part, the carbon dioxide method is the go-to for pigs in Australia. Part of that is because it's considered an ethical option. The other part is that it's quicker and easier to do groups than one at a time as well. So there's that sort of productivity side of things. And that is where we've kind of been boxed into a system where pigs are being processed at large scale abattoirs and how you might process them at smaller scale abattoirs might be different. But we have to fit in with the rules and the way things are done. So what other what other ways are there of slaughtering a pig as opposed to carbon dioxide? The other, the only other real option is to stun, which typically uses a captive bolt, which is not a gun that doesn't kill the animal, but it is a quick bit of metal that quickly juts out and bumps them with force in the middle of the forehead. Well, that sounds much quicker and in some ways more ethical. It is, yeah, in the sense that it's a quicker moment but pigs are quite different from any other animal that we raise for meat and in particular pigs 
really respond with a lot of stress by being separated from the group. So to stun and stick an animal, you have to actually take them one at a time into a chute so that you can hold them still to get the stun in the right position because obviously you don't want to have to do it a second time. You want to do it right the first time. You can't do that in a group environment. So it's a bit of a trade-off between the extended stress to separate one pig at a time from the group which is stressful for pigs in particular in a way that it's not stressful for cattle and for chickens so you'd have to either do that and then you have a longer amount of stress for each pig or you put them in groups where they are less stressed and then you do the carbon dioxide method and what we saw on that footage whilst I really want to be clear that it's horrific and graphic and unacceptable and something that I think the industry really needs to consider strongly. It's not how it happens for all pigs all the time. That's the end, the you know extreme end of the possible reactions to carbon dioxide. So for a lot of pigs, it's much more peaceful than that. But either option involves stress. So it becomes a matter of then balancing which one is least stressful for the most number of pigs. So in an ideal world, what would what would you like to see? Are these really the only two options that we have for, for slaughtering pigs? Because neither sound particularly ideal. Mm, yeah, I think it's um, a really complicated question. They are the only two options in the current system that we have. Um, but ideally, you know, if, if we're talking ideal world scenario, what I would love to see is that on-farm slaughter and processing of animals can become well, first of all, legal, because it's currently not, to do that and then sell the meat. So first of all, for that to become a legal practice, an approved practice that has some governance over it, so you know people are taking responsibility for food safety in that situation, but also for it to actually be achievable and affordable, because in Australia, a lot of our farms are quite spread out from one another. So to take um, you know, a little mini abattoir on the road and move it from farm to farm, there's a lot of costs involved in that. So it's it's currently not a financially viable solution in a lot of cases and it's also just really difficult with the regulations that we've got which are designed for big stationary abattoirs. The other in-between option, in between your, our current big abattoir system and our small scale or, or our um, home kill option is to have many local small-scale abattoirs that are situated on farms. So that would be a stationary abattoir, but small-scale, which when you make things bigger and you involve more and more pigs from other farms, the pigs will get more stressed. So having a small-scale abattoir kind of takes away from some of that stress a little bit so that things like stick and stun become less stressful than they are in the big abattoirs and therefore a more viable option compared to your carbon dioxide processing. But we need to not be taking pigs that far um, to to be processed. Because I'm sure that travel would also really be quite a stressful experience for them. Yeah, and I think that's something that we need to look at with, particularly now that we've seen this footage of this carbon dioxide reaction for some of these pigs, is what are the other factors that are involved that are causing these pigs in particular to stress out in that situation so much where other pigs don't with carbon dioxide. Um, and so there's certainly things like how stressed are the pigs already when they go into that chamber? Have they travelled very far to get to the abattoir? Have they been off their food for that long period of time because they're travelling? The biggest thing that we can take 
takeaway from this is that as a consumer, we have a responsibility to think about what we're purchasing and that, you know, our money goes a long way in terms of a vote for what we want the food system to be like. Um, if you're not comfortable with the ethics of the product, don't buy it, but also seek out an option that makes you feel better about where you're spending your money because those options do exist and I think they should be rewarded by consumers purchasing from them and celebrated and part of this discussion around what can we do better for the animals that we're raising for human consumption. Sarah Groom from Homemade Healthy Happy Farm at Waitui, speaking there with Tina Quinn. You're listening to Country Breakfast on RN This Morning. Traditional owners in Victoria's southeast have gained formal recognition of their land rights with support from the Andrews Labor government to ensure country is managed by First Nations people for First Nations people. At a hearing on Eastern Ma Country at Logan's Beach in Warrnambool, the Minister for Treaty and First Peoples, Gabrielle Williams, joined the Federal Court of Australia and the Eastern Ma community to formally recognise the native title rights. The consent determination acknowledges Eastern Mars connection to the land along Victoria's southeastern coast, including the coastline of the Great Ocean Road and Great Otway National Park. Emily Bislin reports. Today at Logan's Beach is a day like no other. There's a current in the air. There are hundreds of Eastern Ma people milling about, waiting to walk into a gigantic white marquee. This is the day that Eastern Ma traditional owners can celebrate a victory. So today is a consent determination where the judge will have a hearing here on country. Jamie Lowe is the former CEO of the Eastern Ma Aboriginal Corporation. And he's also a board member of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. There will be a judgment handed down where our native title is, um, is I guess, given to us. That's, that's a big deal. The determination acknowledged Eastern Mars' ongoing connection and intrinsic relationship with their country in southwestern Victoria. And that includes much of the coastline of the Great Ocean Road. It also includes large parts of the Great Otway National Park and extends right up to Dunkeld at the base of Jerrywald or the Grampians. Native title rights are non-exclusive. They recognise Eastern Ma people's rights to access and use, as well as to protect public land in accordance with their traditional laws and customs. It also includes their right to be consulted on the use and development of land and its natural resources for the protection and preservation of places and areas within cultural importance. What it says is that our people have been here forever and practising and keeping our culture alive forever. The negotiations for this decision began in 2012 and none of those people who first brought that case are still alive. Unfortunately, our, none of our original claimants are alive, and so that's, that's significant within itself and paying respect and homage to, to, to the old people is something that today is all about. Um, and even those old people that have survived, um, you, know, the, you know, it's been a weary journey. In the words of Justice Bernard Murphy, who presided over the determination and travelled to Logan's Beach, he was a sight to see in his judge's robes so stately. His words were as follows. 
The court's recognition that the determination area is and always was the country of Eastern Ma peoples. The significance of this consent determination is profound. The Victorian Minister for Treaty and First Peoples, Minister Gabrielle Williams. It enshrines in law recognition and respect for Eastern Ma's enduring connection to this country and that should never be underestimated in what that means. On the way in approaching, I could see lots and lots of Bundjamara people, of Kirewurrung people coming in who, to have it here in Warrnambool on country inside the Eastern Ma nations must be so significant. Like, there's kids out there who are seeing something that lots of people never would have seen in their lifetime. Well, they'll remember this um, as young people. They'll remember this for their lifetime and something they'll, they'll be able to tell their kids' kids. Because you just don't know where this is going to go. We're, we're having treaty negotiations here in Victoria and hopefully that can kind of elevate to treaty conversations on a national stage as well. Um, but this, what this does is recognises our people and, and, and locks us in, into the game those negotiations. Eastern Ma citizen Jodie Sizer and her daughter travelled all the way from Torquay. My name is Chloe. Jodie Sizer. What brought you here today? Well, we're both Eastern Ma citizens and we've been on a really long journey. I feel emotional already. And today is really important for uh, long fought from the generations before us and it's important for the generations to come. It's a recognition of rights provides a platform for for all things from economic development to meaningful recognition so we can ensure that we have the self-determination to uh, secure our rightful place in the future. What do you reckon today is all about? How many people do you think are here? Like probably like 500 people <laughs> like more and we're here because the um the highest of judges are here to confirm that we were the first people on this land, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Have you watched mum and, and auntie and grandma fighting for their rights for a long time? Yeah. Yeah. Always beating lots of marches. <laughs> Having your clothes. Lots of meetings. And it must be amazing to see so many um, Kirei Wurong and Bundjamara and Ma Nations people here all together. It's a big gathering with a smoking fire. Is it good to see everyone as well? Yeah. How many relations have we got here, Chloe? How many cousins have you seen already? Well, I already have like five million right now, so. <laughs> and it's an important moment to come together for a good purpose, unfortunately. Too many times I've seen the family come together, it's for sorry business. So to come together to recognise and celebrate, it's few and far between and it's incredible. To think that we've got such a uh, pristine part of the, the world um, that has been not yet fully embracing of the, the knowledge and wisdom that Aboriginal people have to bring to caring for that country along the Great Ocean Road. It has uh, 7 million visitors a year on the Great Ocean Road and I think probably 6.5 million of those wouldn't know that it's east of Mar country. So we need to do something about that. They will now. Jodie Sizer and her daughter ending that report from Emily Bisland. My thanks this week to Serena Locke, Kath Macklin and Tim Simons. Join the rest of the Saturday morning crew coming up next right here on RN.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.